Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 307, and I had a conversation with Les Stapleton. He is the mayor of Prestonsburg, Kentucky, a former MMA fighter, former undercover narcotics, and a retired Kentucky State Patrolman. He and I met this past weekend in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, when I was there for the Appalachian Arts and Entertainment Awards. Uh, had a great time, and he and his wife Karen showed me all over the town. They picked me up at the airport. He took me back to the airport. Uh, it was just wonderful. And I said, hey, it would be so fun to have you on the show. Would you be up for it? And he said, absolutely. And so here we are with this episode. He talks about his life and various incarnations of such. He's done it all for sure. And great outlook on life and just a really interesting man. Uh, Had really a wonderful, wonderful weekend getting to know him and many people in Prestonsburg. Uh, I highly recommend that town if you're looking for somewhere on the map to go visit. It's beautiful up in the Kentucky mountains and really just such a fun time. So. Okay, usual stuff. Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Hey Human Podcast. Imagine that. If you want to check out my personal social media, it's under Susan Ruthism at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. If you go to HeyHumanPodcast.com, you will find a links page. Every episode gets its own links pile so that you can do your deep diving from the comfort of one spot. Every episode has a ton of links for you to, to dig in and learn more about my guest and what we talked about and things like that. Also on HeyHumanPodcast.com, you will find the contribute button. And that's there on that front page. If you want to help keep Hey Human ad free. And if you want to help support Hey Human, click on that button and every little bit helps and I appreciate it. Rate and review and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Another great way to help support the show. Uh, It's all about the algorithms these days. Am I right? If you want to check out old episodes of Hey Human from the very, very beginning, because you know, there's now 307 So iTunes and a couple different platforms only show 300 episodes at a time. If you say to yourself, you know what? I want to go back to the very beginning. Where do I go? You go to heyhumanpodcast.com and they will all be there for you to listen to. Check out the YouTube channel for Official Susan Ruth. That's what it's under, Official Susan Ruth. And it's all sorts of things, videos that I've put up there. Definitely check that out. Uh, subscribe to that, especially algorithm, algorithm, algorithm. It's all about the algorithms. Check out SusanRuth.com if you want to know more about me, hear interviews with me, check out my art, listen to music, that kind of thing. If you want to get my album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your music and look up Susan Ruth or again, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. That's the name of the album. And uh, yeah, on SusanRuth.com, you can also sign up on the mailing list. And I will every once in a while send you a mailer telling you what I'm up to if I'm up to anything interesting. All right, that's about it. Be well, stay safe, be kind, take care of each other. And uh, thanks for listening. Here we go. Les Stapleton, welcome to Hey Human. It's my pleasure to be here. And you are the mayor of Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Yes, small town in far eastern Kentucky uh, in the Appalachian Mountains. And what's the population there? Uh, 3,500, give or take 100. Pretty small town. Yeah, Yeah. it is. We are small town America. I had the opportunity to be there last weekend and meet you and many of the people that live there. And I had a big time and y'all treated me so well. It was so much fun. You know, the people of Appalachia have always been known for the hospitality. As long as they're treated halfway with respect, they'll, treat, they'll be very hospitable to you. Yeah, and I feel and it like... Was great meet, and let me just say, it's great meeting you. <laughs> Likewise. Super fun. I had a big time. Uh, let's get into you. Where are you from originally? I was born and raised in Elkhorn City. It's up on the uh, Virginia border, Pine Ma- at the foot of the Pine Mountain Hills. Um in Pike County, which is the next county over. So I've always lived in the Appalachian Mountains. 
Um, went to high school there. I uh, went to college on Virginia, still in the Appalachian Mountains, and joined the state police. How many generations of your family have lived there? Uh, we could trace it back um, at least four. And uh, on one side and probably more than that on the other. Yeah. And your wife also is several generations deep, right? Yes. Her family, although she was... Born in Ohio and raised in Lexington, her family is from here, and that was many generations. Yeah, that's cool. I think there's, it's neat to be able to trace a lineage back so far. So many of us, you know, are just first or second generation Americans. I've been fascinated for a long time with people who have such deep, deep roots into the soils here. Well, you know, sometimes you'll, uh, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. So come, sometimes you'll find those in-laws and outlaws so you got to be careful which one you find yeah because the hatfields and mccoys right there around there somewhere Hatfield mccoys are right from here yes but they get along okay now do you find in in families in in that region tend to hold on to stories tightly whether they're good or bad sure they do um you know when they first came here and when people came to the appalachian mountains they came here looking for independence whether it be independence of religion from government or whatever. They came looking for independence. And um, the extended family was their society, for lack of a better term. I mean, they had churches, which was a main focal point. At, but extended family is what they really uh, associated with quite often. So, yeah, they were able to keep the stories uh, going. And they may have um, expanded on some of them, sort of like a fisherman does. But yeah. that's it. Uh, it's true. They did keep. They do keep them alive still to this day. There's a lot of oral tradition that still goes on, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my own family, my mother's told some tales that we, the kids, have later gone back to look. And we're like, oh, she bent a little bit of that here and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the uh, art of being a storyteller is that you can expand on stories to uh, make them a little more entertaining. Uh, tell me about childhood. Did you grow up in a tight family, big family, little family? Yeah, my dad worked in the uh, coal business. So uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, coal business was on a major decline. Then later on, it hit. So I, I had a good upbringing. Uh, I grew up either in or around Elkhorn City in different places. But uh, my dad uh, got cancer and died when I was 15. Uh, my mom, bless her heart, uh, she worked a third shift shoveling coal out from under a conveyor belt, cleaning the conveyor belt. And, uh, you know, uh, so me and my sister and brother had to be somewhat independent at an early age. Not that she didn't take care of us, but she had to sleep too. It was an interesting childhood, I guess. Played sports, small town. Sure. That's about as exciting as it gets. I'm not a very exciting person. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Was your dad's cancer related to the coal, do you think? No, it was pancreatic. Uh, it was just an issue that he had. Yeah. Okay. Since you grew up in a town that was coal focused and then seeing the coal going away from being the thing that brought in revenue, how did that affect the town from your perspective? Um, the city of Restensburg was affected tremendously. Uh, a lot of the uh, attorneys, brokers, um, those type businesses were located here in town and almost all the local businesses fed off of the coal economy. So it did make a difference. That's why it, uh, when I came on in 2015, my administration took over working with the council, the city council, we decided to try to turn to a little bit more of a tourist uh, economy. Uh, we have natural beauty here. We have the train here. We have a lot of interesting uh, culture, history, all this stuff, you know, people enjoy it. And uh, I think for, for a while there, it was tough to convince people that this is the route we at least need to go. Their big thing, it'll never replace coal. And I tell people all the time, unless coal will make a comeback to an extent. But unless we find a vein of uranium running through the middle of Prestonsburg, nothing is going to replace coal. That's really hard when you have a specific thing that a town knows how to do and then you take that thing away without giving them an education or a or a <laughs> technology or a technical ability in something else to replace it with well you you know we um 
we received co-severance taxes for quite some time, and that's, that was a funding source that was tremendous. A co-severance tax is a tax uh, based on the coal that's mined, basically. And uh, it came back to us. Part of it went to other places, but a lot of it came back to us. And it was used to uh, help prop us up for a while. And uh, then as it started dwindling away, as a few, few people started mining coal or quit mining coal, I should say, then it um, it became a, uh, when the crutches kicked out from under you, a lot of people fell down, had to work their way back up. What did, what did you do when you graduated from college? What did you go into for? I didn't graduate from college. Oh, okay. Uh, I was a year and a half in playing college basketball. State police started taking applications. I wanted to be a state trooper all my life, so I applied. And I was accepted, but I was waived to the second class. It was a blind draw, and I got the second class. So I knew there was no use in going back to school, but using some skills my dad had taught me and I'd learned throughout the years, I started building houses and doing minor construction jobs, which I did throughout my state police career, so um, as an additional income. What is second? What is that second thing? What does that mean? Oh, the second class. They had, yeah. they had enough people. To field two classes, uh, the state police has their own state police academy, and we have to go to the academy. So they fielded two classes, but I was waived to the second class because of a blind draw. Got it. Just the luck of the draw. What made you want to be a, a state trooper? There was uh, three or four in and around Elkhorn City, and I had a lot of respect for them. Um, I saw the way they carried themselves. I saw how they were able to benefit and to help others, and that that really drew me to it. Um, You know, I tell people all the time, uh, the uniform can make the man or the man can make the uniform. And uh, I watched these uh, older troopers and detectives. They made the uniform. They made the badge. And uh, I wanted to be like them. I wanted an opportunity to be able to help people, and it worked out. And you went into un- undercover stuff. I worked narcotics for about, uh, my career's been 20 years. It's about half and half, half supervision and half general investigation narcotics with some uh, patrol time in there. What was that like? It was interesting. Um, I would, It made me a better police officer because I quit looking at things from a police officer's point of view. I started looking at it from a criminal's point of view, if that makes sense. You know, when I went on a scene after that, it's like, okay, why did, as a police officer, I'd look at it and say, well, that makes no sense. But once I saw the other side, I could look at something and say, I know why he did that now. So it was helpful to me. Um, I got a lot of contacts, uh, some of them positive, some of them negative, but uh, uh, made I was actually able to help some people get help, and that was very beneficial. But I also helped cut off a few few supply lines throughout the years, but as soon as you cut one off, there's another one ready to come in. So, Did you have a big opioid problem there? When I first started, and that's a great question, because when I first started in 87 working narcotics, if I made 10 cases, it would have been marijuana and cocaine, maybe an LSD every now and then. And... I worked it through. I worked it off and on for about four years there. And then in 91, it became um, a lot different because it was more pills. If I made 10 cases, seven of them would be pills, whether it be the uh, lotteds, um, heroin, or whatever, it was pills. And then I got into supervision and was put over the street level program. And then it was meth. So it was, you know, it was, it was different. It was, uh, it was changing and I haven't been in the middle of it. When you say that you had to come from the perspective of the person that was perpetrating the thing, how did that, did that freak your psyche out at all? Or did you, you know, to get down into the mud as it were? You know, there was times it bothered me. Um, and I'll tell this story. Um, I was working narcotics. I had a very long beard, long hair. I mean, I was your big heathen type of guy. And I was sitting at my mom's table and spilt something on myself. And I threw an expletive out there. And I looked around the table and said, 
time for me to go back on the road and get some discipline. So uh, I, closed, I I got the cases finished up. I shaved my, I got my hair cut off, got my beard cut off, and I went back on the road. I got back into the discipline of uh, working as a road unit on patrol. And then after about a year, I went back undercover again. So when you felt it was starting to seep into your own personality, you, you had the wherewithal to step out again. I was fortunate enough that the look my mom gave me scared me back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> you told me over dinner the night that we met that you have been face-to-face with a serial killer. I sure was. I sure was. He, um, he had uh, perpetrated some crime, crimes on 75 and uh, in and around the area. Yeah, I-75 is an interstate near Lexington, Kentucky. It goes north and south. He was, I think he was about, uh, I think he killed about four people. He was in the area. I inherited a unsolved case, a cold case, when I was in general investigation. And we found out that this man was in the area at that time. So uh, we actually went to the prison interview, which was interesting, to say the least. He didn't, he, of course, he denied it, but it was interesting. What struck you about him? I, different than other people you've encountered. There was no soul, no conscious. You look him in the eyes and there was nothing there. I don't care how mad people are. I don't care how mean they are. You look in their eyes and you see something. there. Um, I met with one other individual that was that way. And he was, uh, you just look in their eyes and it's, it's, there's nothing there. There's no, no conscious, no soul behind it. What do you think? Just personally, what do you think causes that? What creates that? It could be environment. You know, that could be a factor. It could be uh, chemical. That could be a factor. And it could be that they're just plain old mean. Yeah. It's just born without the humanity. Yeah. Born without empathy. Something didn't connect. Yeah. Do you have any cases that stand out to you from the 20 years on the force that you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of them. Um, I worked some interesting drug cases before, and, uh, you know, that was interesting to see how those people operate, especially when you get to a higher level. One, they get the resources, and two, they're not dealing with people on a daily basis, so they operate in a vacuum. So uh, they are operating and it's all about this, making the money and that's it. There's nothing else involved in it. And when they take all of the uh, either familiar family ties, they take all that out of it. It's just business. They're operating in a whole different level. That seems like, that seems also like a lack of empathy. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Now they they had something in their eyes. It, it might not have been a soul. It might have been something else, but they had something in their eyes. But, yeah, I think when they get so greedy, I think it makes a big difference. Sure do. Did you see any officers get pulled into, you know, in the movies, there's always that one officer that gets pulled to the dark side. And does that actually happen very often? Sure. I, I could see where it could happen very often if, if someone's given the chance, um, those lines get blurred at times. I will say, you know, people told my mom, Oh, he's hooked on drugs. That's why he went off. When I narcotics went back on the road, I never had to try the first drug. Uh, there's always an excuse, um, that in my opinion, and, uh, I never tried the first drug. And I just tell them, if you don't trust me, I'm out. I just walk away. So, um, it scared me. I'm, 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 I'd be scared to be an addict. So I was very careful. Yeah. I can't, you must've had some close calls where people were uh, questioning whether or not you were who you said you were as an undercover. Sure, yeah. There was a guy pulled a gun once and he said, are you a cop? I said, yeah. He said, he looked at me he smiled and put the gun back away. I said, well, you don't believe me? He said, nah, if I'd been a cop, somebody would have shot me. I said, yeah, you're probably right. We went and did business and I walked out. So, uh, did that scare the crap out of you or did you stay pretty calm? 
you can't afford to panic in those situations. Um, I you're a very working... chill dude, though. <laughs> <laughs> Having spent a couple of days with you, you're very calm. <laughs> you know how many people would not believe that statement? Um, that's come with that's come with a lot of gray hair. So honestly, you you know it's always a possibility. And a lot of times, especially working with younger officers or narcotics officers who were just coming into the business, I know, man, they know who I am. They know who I am. And really, we gave them more credit, or, or, or they're watching us. And we gave them more credit than what they really do. It's a business to them. They want money. I had a guy who I had dealt with, and uh, the guy was a former police officer. And uh, I dealt with him. He kept looking at me. He said, man, you look familiar. I said, hey, we got some of the same friends. When I found out about $10,000 in $100 bills, I said, Benjamin Franklin. He never looked me in the eyes again. I was lucky. Quick thinking is sometimes pays. I'm not the quickest thinker in the world anymore. I think gray hairs are respecting that too. But uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to think my way out of it pretty quick. Having retired from that career, do you find that a lot of the skills and a lot of the behaviors that you had then are still with you, like sitting at a particular spot at a table in a restaurant or just knowing what's going on around you? We talked a little bit about knowing when someone's lying, things like that. Yes. I'm very careful um, when I go in and sit down and went to the uh, state park while ago and had dinner. I had to get my back to the wall. It's just something you do. Um, and then I also went to FBI National Academy and I became a uh, instructor for interviewing and interrogation. And basically that's learning to read when people's lying. And, and that was very interesting. Um, it's hard to turn that off though, when you're just dealing, when I'm at home or, you know, and dealing with the kids, they were younger at the time and, and kids are so classic. If you watch them, you can pick up on things that adults do the same thing, just not to the same extent. To turn that off and just be a dad or a husband or a friend or whatever, sometimes that was a little tough. I'll be honest with you. Like, What's he lying to me about that? What would be some tells that you could offer up to help them if they're in an interaction where they're not sure if someone's lying to them? like on a date or something or someone, some sort of a red flag that might other be people might not notice, but that you would be able to tell. Let me tell you what to do. And the best way I explain that is when I first went in that class, they showed us a bunch of videos and they said, who's lying? That one, that one, that one. Why? Well, I just got this gut feeling. Trust your gut. Subconsciously, you will pick up actions from people that, um, lead you to think they're lying consciously you don't notice but subconsciously you will and you know you're an attractive young lady and i'm sure that you have been in in, in situations where that gut said something ain't right i need to go so you're picking up on things right there now and illustrate those um, habits or those uh tales so to speak if you if you play poker if you learn to illustrate from individuals you've got to set up a baseline. So uh, you want to talk to them about things that they're not going to lie about. Then you want to drag them into a conversation where you know they're going to, hey, have you ever stole anything in your life? Everybody stole something, whether it's pencils from your office, uh, you know, and and that's just, uh, and you get that baseline, and then you see what happens when you ask them a question, makes them uncomfortable and see how they're acting. That's the way you tell it. It's that simple. That's smart. And they can say, and I've had people say, oh, you, you can't tell what I'm like. Okay. Yeah, you can. Everybody's extra, got a tail. Extra details. That's the dead giveaway for me is that yep. when somebody gives extra detail. You know, you and I talked about that if uh, in, a, in a written statement or something. If someone is, let's say, they're telling you what, say, tell me what you did for the day. And they tell you every 15 minutes. And all of a sudden, they go down like five-minute increments or telling you every step they took. That's probably where they're lying. When they change up their normal pattern same way with watching for tails but if you're a narcissist or somebody who lacks empathy isn't it easier to lie or does it make a difference sure i think everybody that everybody could practice being a liar and narcissists believe their own lies and the whole thing is if they believe it they're not gonna have their tails 
Yeah, that's the tricky part. For sure. If someone is pushed emotionally, whether it be a little anger, sadness, or whatever, even if they don't usually portray empathy, they will. You'll be able to tell when they're in a uh, an altered state of mind, an angry, a sad, a depressed, or whatever. You'll be able to you'll be able to pick up on their tails easier. Or alcohol, I think, in vino veritas, right? In wine, there is truth. When people behave a certain way when they're drunk, you can see some people get very angry and mean, and some people just get silly and joyful. Well, you know, alcohol is a uh, mood enhancer. Whatever mood you're in when that happens, that's what mood you're going to be. If you're happy, you're going to be a happy drunk. If you're sad, you're going to be a crying drunk. If you're uh, angry or or volatile, you're going to be a mean drunk. So Mm -hmm. I think that's just, uh, it magnifies whatever your personality is. Yeah. You talked about, uh, you told me the story about when you had to fight with somebody that was on, was it PCP? PCP is an animal trailer. Yeah. Tells you how old I am. That's way back in the day. (laughs) And uh, he was a very small fella. And uh, normally I could control, I shouldn't be able to control him. You're gigantic. You're a huge guy. (laughs) Six, four, six, five. Yeah, I'm, I'm as tall as you are within your heels. Yeah, that's true. When you can't use pain compliance and they don't feel pain, how do you control somebody? And uh, it was it was difficult. It, I actually, while trying to get him handcuffed, his shoulder dislocated. And he just slams it into the shoulder. He slammed his shoulder into the car, puts it back in place, turns and looks at me and says, call more help. So, you know, that, that's sort of... That's that's very uh, eye-opening to deal with somebody like that. Um, we fought, and I don't know, this might not be a very common terminology or so, but a horseshoe battle is what we fought. He and I did. What's that? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a fight. It, it's a big fight, a horseshoe battle is. Uh, what it all boils down to is uh, I didn't want to shoot him. And I didn't want to hit him with a flashlight. I didn't want to cause him any major issues because I dealt with this guy before, and he's never been that way, so I knew something was wrong. But eventually it got to the point where I was getting tired and I couldn't let him win because if he wins, he's got control of my gun and he's an altered state. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't abuse him. I didn't hit him after I got handcuffs on him. I didn't do anything like that, but now we had to fight. I had to fight him to get, usually if you deal with a drunk or something like that on the side road, it's a wrestling match. You wrestle around, get him handcuffed, put him back to the car. It's not really a fight. This was a fight. This is two guys going at it. Yeah. Wow. You didn't have a taser on you? <laughs> when I when I came on, they didn't have tasers. When huh? I came on, they didn't didn't even have pepper spray. Wow. Oh. You're not yeah. old. Oh yeah. I was tickled to death that uh when they put me in a cruiser and took me off a horse. <laughs> you weren't riding a dinosaur around town. <laughs> Yes, that was it. <laughs> Little brontosaurus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had a hat too. It was real cute. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen that cartoon. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Did you tell me you've been stabbed or you've been shot at? Or both? I've been shot at numerous times, but uh, I, I was stabbed once. Uh, it wasn't a deep wound. It was in the thigh. Um, the boy just didn't want to go to jail. But... Uh, we were able to handcuff and they probably didn't have to shoot him or anything. So it was, it was all good, just wrestling around. And that's where my size pays off. You know, at 6'4", 275, it, I can lay on somebody and make them uncomfortable. Sure. Absolutely. Do you get calmer in a gunfight? I think after you've been in those situations for so long, I think you actually, um, you're you do remain calmer. You don't get excited because your body gets to the point where it stays with your mind and you under and, and being out of control at that point can get you hurt. So with the proper training with experience, I honestly do think some people thrive in the chaos. Like you. <laughs> like me, yeah. I would say I do. <laughs> What's something about policing that you wish people knew? Because I know, 
especially over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about what it means to be a police officer. And but I, I guess state patrol is, is a bit different though. Yeah. I'm not really. It's just, we have a, a, a wider area to patrol or to, okay. to take care of state police has, you know, statewide jurisdiction and our jurisdiction is a lot wider. It's a lot rural most of the time. Uh, I tell you what I'd like for people to know is, um, and this is very simple. There's that 1% in everything, that 1% in every vocation that is uh, not going to be up to par and they're not going to be, um, well, let's just face it, they're going to be illegal. They're going to operate outside the boundaries. And, uh, you know, when you see those people on TV and stuff, that's usually people that's done that. Um, that's I saw a statistic one time, and, and this number is not going to be that because I don't remember exactly. So there was a traffic stop, and something bad turned out of it. There was over 500,000 other traffic stops that day where nothing bad did turn out. You know, don't, don't take one person and put us all in that same boat. Um, and I think that, that's important in anything you do, whether it be uh, – Public servants, notice I didn't say politicians, public servants, there's a difference. Or, um, you know, teachers, for example. Some teachers really, really care, and that will be the majority. Then you got those one or two that really make everybody look bad. Sure. And, people, and with social media today and with the fact that everything is right there on camera, it just it helps exasperate the problem. Do you think it's difficult for the good guys to weed out the bad guys? I honestly think they weed, weed themselves out, mm -hmm. but uh, you can see it coming most of the time. Um, as a police officer, you know what's right and wrong, and you'll see it, and you'll start watching. And But now remember that they know that they're watching too. They know they're being watched if they are doing anything that's wrong. So yeah, it yeah they weed themselves out along with peer pressure. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So when you retired, you went into the fighting cage fighting. Is it <laughs> yes, MMA specifically? Yes, MMA. I was uh, 42 years old. I was old. Um, I was a defensive tactics instructor, and um, I went and watched one of those MMA fights. I said, you know, I didn't get to use this because I was a supervisor when I learned it, so I didn't get to use it a lot. I said. I want to see if this stuff works. So I started training with a couple of local guys and there was a promotion come through and I signed up for a fight and I didn't really get my appetite to take care of the first fight. So I fought the second fight and I was okay. It was all good. Then I got challenged by younger men that was uh, dressed me as old man stuff and my ego got in the way. So I think I was nine and two. So 11 fights after <laughs> Yeah, I fought. Uh, I actually turned pro eventually and fought three pro fights. And uh, I saw a picture of you on the on the Google machine where you have a big belt that you won. Yes, my two sons were with me. That was actually my third fight, um, and uh, it was it was a good, exciting fight. Um, I had some of the best trainers in the world. If uh, if I was finding someone who was a boxer, my my camp. I was a wrestler. And if I start fighting someone who was a wrestler, I was a boxer. So, you know, and that's that's the way our camp ran. I had my own gym for a while, East Kentucky Combat Club, EKCC. You and, owned it, uh, you mean? Or? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. And we, and we all trained there, and it was uh, it was an amazing bunch of young men. And, you know, you'd, I'd walk in and be a new guy come up, and he said, well, I want to show you guys some stuff. Next thing you know, we're off. And we're working on new uh, maneuvers or new holds or whatever. So it was uh, it was a collective group of people who got together and uh, just hung out and uh, sat around and hit on each other. That's to me fascinating to willfully get into the ring with somebody that may in fact kick your ass <laughs> and try and you, kick their ass. <laughs> you know, most of the time now there's always those occasions. Most of the time, these guys that have to run their mouth before a fight. They're hyping themselves up or they're trying to get in the other one's head. Uh, when you get in there, and I, I refereed probably a thousand fights. 
So when you get in there and that cage door closes and you hear that chink, and it changes everything. It's just two guys in there going at it. So and the referee. So it any man gets in there, a woman, and uh, they get in there and they they fight inside the cage. They got my they got my respect. So wild. I've watched one of those fights. And all I could think of was like, oh my God, that looks like it hurt a whole lot. <laughs> they get walloped. People get walloped in there. Surprisingly, you don't feel it when you're fighting. Your adrenaline is so crazy. Yeah, you'll get your nose broke. And, you know, next thing you know, you're over the corner wiping blood. And then you now by 4.30 in the morning, the next day, yeah, it start, you start feeling it. I bet. You roll over, you start feeling it. What made you get out of it? You just want to do it for a little while. I was 49 years old. That's awesome. And the, and the, and the people fighting me was getting younger. Yeah, I get that. Uh, I still work out occasionally just to try to stay in some kind of shape. And then you decided you wanted to be mayor. Yes. Well, I was, uh, when I left state police, I've been houses for about four years, five years. And then I went into the gas and oil business as a land agent. I would go out and get leases, right-of-ways, and secure uh, mineral rights so that we could drill on the properties. And um, my son was getting ready to go to college, and my wife and I were talking. I said, well, when he gets ready, when he comes back home, and I looked around, I said, there's really not much for him to come back home to. So I got on the city council. And then I thought maybe when uh, talking with some other council and stuff that we probably need to move the city in a different direction. And I ran and here I am, at least for the rest of this term. Do you like it? I do. My city council is great. They support me so well. And about probably 75% of the people out there, they're so supportive. And they're always those people running around. And I, and I say this and, and in jest, but it, there's honestly a lot of truth to it. If I had a goose going through town laying golden eggs, they would complain about goose feathers. You're never going to please everybody. And if you, with social media today, if you don't have a tough skin, don't even think about public service. I mean, you're a target. And uh, it bothers me when my family gets targeted about stuff or they get accosted verbally because of something. but. It's uh, they understand, and uh, we think we we're, we're doing some good here. My, like I said, my council's outstanding. When you were running for mayor the first time, running for mayor in a small town has got to be quirky. Oh, everybody <laughs> knows your business in a small town, and if you don't know what you're doing, ask somebody. I tell you. But uh, a good example was uh, there was four ladies that. Uh, I, they were at a restaurant. They said, Mr. Stable, can we talk to you? And I sat down and talked to them. And uh, they were curious. At this point, Karen and I were back together. And so, these are older uh, older women, correct? Yeah, older women. Yeah, very much. Uh, older, older women. Even for me, they were old. So, uh, and they asked, uh, you know, well, we understand that you used to date such and such. And they asked me a few questions. Like I said, ladies, I'm not going to discuss what I did when I was single. Uh, if I didn't want to be alone, I wasn't alone. I'm just going to leave that there. But I'm not going to discuss who it was and who I dated or whatever. It's their story to tell, not mine. And uh, they said, okay. So um, I walked away and I had my dinner. As I was getting ready to leave, they asked me to come back over the table. And they said, um, Mr. Stable, we just want you to know we think we're going to support you because you didn't lie to us and you didn't try to cover up or backtrack or anything. You just told it like it was. And they went thereafter and called people every night uh, to help support me. And I'm sure it was a big push about three weeks out from the election. I'm sure it was a big push because these ladies had a lot of friends. And you won by landslide, correct? Well, I think it's right two to one the first time. Second time was three to one. Yeah. This time, great. I just hope I get by. Like I said, just a few more projects and I'm done. Got to get those women on the phone calling around yeah. town. Yes. And the, the town always has its matriarchy and its patriarchy, and they, they are certainly the matriarchs of the town, correct? Yes, they were. They they are. If you want to know anything about history in this town, you go talk to them. I'll have to come and bring my recording equipment and interview them. Oh, you would have fun. You would get along great with them. Get them all up for tea or something and then just record the conversation. <laughs> Once they got to where they trusted you, you could get some stories.
I would love that. I this is my biggest frustration with this country, especially, is how we turn our backs on people of a certain age who have the wealth of everything that has come before, you know? And we just disregard them and they have all the best stories. They really do. And you know, the, the fact that history was good or bad, you can't erase it. It happened. That's right. And what it all boils down to is if you learn from your mistakes in history or you learn from your success in history, it can help guide you on down the road and listen to those people and let let them tell you the stories of successes and failures. It really, it can help you get moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everybody that I met in that town was just, they seem to have each other's back. We are. You know, it's funny. It's sort of like brothers, you know, yeah. I can say anything I want to about my brother. You don't say anything. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of the way Appalachia is too. You know, Hey, you can, you know, we might battle and we may have rivalries and we may not like each other. When it comes right down to it, it comes Appalachia and the rest of us. We're still with it. There's a, certainly, I think a great misconception about people from that region of America about how they think or what they want or who they are. And you and I had gotten to some really interesting conversations. And you even said, you know, there are perceptions that y'all have of people from the West Coast. Sure. Yes, you know? we did. You know, I, I expected uh, somebody who didn't like guns and was going to try to push their agenda on me and, you know, all that stuff. And I come in, I find out you like guns. And, you know, They're fun uh, to shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, that was, it was, it was very eye-opening to me. Because, you know, I figured when, I, when you were an artist and, uh, you know, you're a, a songwriter, you're a, a vocalist. And when you see all this, you think, oh, man, it's going to be very liberal or something, you know. And I am pretty liberal. Then, yeah. Huh? And so are you. What? <laughs> you're you're kind of liberal. I'm kind of liberal, but I'm also very conservative, too. I, I, I'm probably right down the middle in all of it because, yeah. you know, we had a discussion about marijuana. Although when I was with state police, I put people in jail for marijuana, but that's yeah. it was against the law. And uh, but I'm an advocate, a big advocate of medicinal marijuana. And uh, if I was interviewed about recreational marijuana, and I'm honest, I would tell you that the entire time I was with the state police, I never fought anybody who was on marijuana, who'd been smoking marijuana, except for the one guy that had the PCP on, in the lace tent. So, you know, I'm. I don't mean to be, um, I don't want to be hypocritic, but the law said I had to do it and I did it. But on the other side, I understand. So, But that's like the biggest thing for me is to know that people are, they are a gray scale of things. Nobody is, we like to paint our pictures of people as being all this thing. Oh, you're from there. You're all this thing. And it's just not the case. Yes, I think you were surprised when I had shoes on, weren't you? And you weren't pregnant. <laughs> I wasn't pregnant, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you know, the thing about it is, is um, we've had that stereotype for generations. Sure. Now, initially, we were so independent that we got that stereotype because we were so independent. But you know what? A lot of people don't understand, and I'm going to use a great uncle of mine as an example. I think he had an eighth grade education went to work in the mines and he learned to work on electronic equipment, uh, miners, uh, shuttle cars, and things that are used inside of that have a lot of electronics. And he ended up teaching at Joy Manufacturing. And because of his experience and because he was smart enough to pick it up and him with eighth grade education, he was speaking to people with college degrees and teaching them stuff. And there's so many people in this area who are so smart and they come up with such intricate and out of the box ideas that it, uh, it surprises even me sometimes, even though I've seen it. Right. When I was living in Nashville in the very beginning, uh, I met this guy, Jody, and he did not really know how to read or write. He was from the, you know, the hills, hill, he called himself hill people and uh, did not read or write, was nice as nice could be, but just this great mind for construction, built these beautiful houses 
was not educated at all. Um, in fact, when he had to deal with banking stuff, he had a person at the bank that would help him because he couldn't read any of the paperwork or anything. Yes. He was super successful, very well off. And it just goes to show you, you know, we, we put people in boxes and no one, no one should be in a box. Intelligence does not have to have education. Right. Intelligence can be a lot of different things. I've seen a lot of educated people who could barely walk across the street. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, and, for and sure. that, that's the other side of that. That's the other end of that spectrum. So yeah. There's there's all kinds out there. Absolutely. What's next for you? What do you what is your plans? Mm, I don't know. We'll see when it happens. I'm, I'm running for one more term here. I already I always told people I had uh six projects I want to get done. Um I've got three of them done, completed, and uh, I've got uh, three more. Actually, took big steps towards one today, so on a funding opportunity. So I think uh, if I can get those done, I don't know. I might retire. Can you talk about retire? The- sit on the porch, sit on the porch swing, and just rock. You don't believe that? I do. Smoke your corn cob pipe. Do some- yeah, that would be me. You do some whittling. Uh, I've you know, done a. <laughs> When my dad died, I was with him the night he died. And I, I need to back up and t- probably tell this story. I was with him the night he died. And my dad told me, but he was so coherent for about 30 minutes. He and I had the greatest conversation ever. And uh, he told me, he said, don't ever be laying where I am right now saying, I wish I coulda, woulda, or shoulda. And uh, that rang true to me. So I, I've done a lot of things in my life. People think I'm crazy. I fought in a cage. Um, you know, if, if something happened to me today, I've had a heck of a run. I fought in a cage. I've swam with sharks. I swam a, I swam a wreck off, scuba a wreck off the uh, South Carolina coast. I've skydived. I mean, there's not been a lot that I've not done that I wanted to do. I'm not, it's not that I have a lot of wants, but sometimes I'll see something, hey, that's pretty cool. I want to try it. You're now, an adventurer. Yeah. Oh, I am adventurous. Yeah. I've done a lot of stuff. And uh, uh, I was a whitewater. Uh, raft guide for a while you know and i've just done a lot of different stuff because that's pretty cool and it's fun and let me see what i can do with it so that makes it interesting that makes life interesting for me so what were the three things that you accomplished and what are the three things you have yet to accomplish um well one of the tra- one was the passage trail i think i told you about it it's the rail trail projects asphalt it's um it's eight and a half miles long with less than uh, 100 feet of elevation change. So it's a great for anybody to get out and walk on. And sort of with that is the Sugar Camp Mountain Trails, which uh, BKXC, who is a YouTuber, and he's an influence for mountain bikes, said that we were probably one of the best, the second best trail systems and group behind Alaska, which was saying a lot. He did a 50-state shred. Um, we had a race there this Saturday, this Sunday. Yeah, you, you went up and saw them. Yes. I did. I before, did. Before we drove out. And um, one was a uh, it's an infrastructure project that we got worked on. The three things I have left is, well, two infrastructure projects that will be turned into one. And uh, I have a big desire to get a um, zip line and a uh, sky lift in here. Um, we need it. It's, uh, we have, it's, we are right for it. And I think they would be a, uh, very feasible option for us tourism. We've got a lot of things to bring people here. We need a couple more things that will allow some of the kids to have a reason to stay overnight. I really love that shop we went into. Oh, Mountain Muse and Heather. Oh yeah. She's Wasn't there some interesting stuff in there i loved it i brought home some lps i was really happy <laughs> did you go back and look at the old clothes that she had back in oh the yeah I, I tried to get karen to get did you see the uh 1920s feather hat no. type thing she had that i tried to get karen to get that for the appies event that night she wouldn't do it <laughs> and i thought it would just look plumb out of place on me yeah well you never know all kinds of kinds <laughs> I love yours and Karen's love story that you were married 10 years, then you divorced, and then you got married again. Yes. That's a great story. Well, uh, 
And I'm not saying this because me and her, we were probably the best co-parents ever. Um, we put the kids first in anything. And uh, we made sure that the kids, I mean, she kept my checkbook for most of that 10 years we were divorced. And uh, when I had a business, she she helped me take care of my books and my business. Um, I'd call her up and say, hey, I got enough money to go do this this weekend. Well, yeah, okay, all right, thanks. So I'd go get the money and go on. So uh, it was all about the kids. And, you know, if people don't start putting these kids first, that's that's where the downfall is. They don't – if you're going to have a child, that child's your responsibility, put it first. Yeah, I get frustrated when I hear parents using the kids as some sort of a weaponized instrument. Yeah, that's so horrible. Um, we had to take parenting classes, and I remember uh, – sitting there in the class and this guy just started harping about his wife and how he was getting messed over and all this. And he said, well, and I got to pay so much child support. I said, how much you pay? And he said, $150 a year or a month. I said, how many children do you have? He said, two. I said, you're paying $75 a month per child. He said, yeah. And he said, that's too much. At that time, my wife had my checkbook. We in a, in our divorce decree, there was no amount set. Whatever she needed, she took she took care of my kids. She fed them. She kept them in a good car. Kept them in a clean house. Well, how would I take money away from her to do that? So she, uh, if she needed something, she'd call me up. So I need something to school time. Gotta get school clothes. All right, here's you know whatever you need, go get it. And you were young when you got married the first time, correct? Yeah, we were in our 20s, and I never had a child until I was 33, I think. And then in that 10 years that you were separated, because the children were a bond, you just figured out how to fall in love again? We were around each other so much. It just, um, it was a, uh, it was inevitable. We were around each other. Our boys were playing travel baseball, so you're on the road all the time, and you know, just we were around each other a lot. And we realized, I, I realized pretty quick that I wasn't going to uh, find anybody that could be a, uh, a a partner with me, a significant other to me, and uh, a parent to my boys as good as she could. So, And she's super hot, too. <laughs> and it helps. That yeah. helps. <laughs> oh, I love it. I was so tickled to be able to spend the whole weekend with y'all and I had so much fun. And again, you took such good care of me and it was neat learning all about the town and going sightseeing with you. And then uh, Rusty took me sightseeing too, Rusty Justice. Yes. So when are you coming back? That's the question. I think I said it to Jill that that band was so good. The boys that played with me were so great. I, I thought, oh, it'd be fun to do a show there and get them. How fun those would that guys be? Are, those guys are phenomenal. I think They're I told so you a good. story about them watching a girl play a song who she had never charted. They charted it, and an hour and a half uh, later, under a video recording, they did it flawlessly. Yeah, they're great. And they're just good guys. Yeah. Oh, great guys. Great yeah. guys. I, I love hanging around with them. Um, I told them they could do anything if if they were asked to do it, except for make me sound good singing. <laughs> you never know. Tell people how they can find you and, and, and support your endeavors and things, like when you go to raise money for the town and such. I'm on social media as Les Stapleton. Uh, the city is City of Prestonsburg on Facebook. I don't Twitter. I think I have an Instagram account. I'm pretty sure I do. I don't know. But, um, you know, we have a lot of stuff going on here. and We have people that are starting to invest in our area. We are uh, recruiting daily uh, for people that want to. The council and I decided we need to improve the quality of life in this area. That's why we concentrate so much on tourism. That's a little revenue and people have things to do. And now we got we got to have businesses coming in and see this and understand that this is a place people want to live. They want to be out in rural Kentucky. Yeah. And we're going to try and recruit industry in business. Where, I don't care what it is. I love the little concentrated area of shops and there seemed like a lot of room for growth. Yes. And, you know, you'll notice that even our sit-down restaurants, they weren't franchise restaurants. No. They were unique restaurants. 
And we have two that are closed down. One's remodeling, one that caught on fire. So you didn't get to enjoy those. But we have been very fortunate. Again, it's the independence of Appalachian people. Uh, I don't – and don't get me wrong. If, if somebody said, we want to put a red lobster in there, I'm like, yes, where do you want to put it? But uh, we still have uh, unique restaurants. I Remember I told you about the old post office and there was a restaurant coming in? So he put his sign up this weekend, the Loaded Goat. It's a great name. Sort of a, Going to be sort of an upscale sit-down restaurant. Have uh, not going to have a lot of stuff on the menus. You're going to have uh, limited menus, and he's hired a chef. He said, "I'd rather do X amount great than try to do Y yeah. partially." Yeah, as a Pacific Northwest born and raised girl who did spend a long time in Nashville, but still, it's a beautiful place. Great for hiking, as you said, biking. Uh, there's trails everywhere. The flowers are gorgeous. You have four seasons. Every yeah, we, you can enjoy four seasons in one day, as you said. That's true. I did going in the morning and <laughs> sixty five in the evening. Uh, but you know, we uh, we we also have a, a kayak on the river. Uh, we have a kayak event every fourth Saturday. If people want to come around for fifteen dollars, we pick them up on the takeout, and we pick them and their craft up. We drive them up to the put in, which is about. 8.2 miles, and we have two rescue boats on the water. Uh, they paddle down, and they get out, and they have a meal, and that, all that for 15 bucks. Um, we break even-ish, but it gets people into town. And yeah. they come here, and they enjoy the water, and there's so much beauty out there. And the water tastes good, too. I was noticing that the drinking water there tastes really nice, and my hair felt real clean. <laughs> <laughs> we do have... Add- 2017 or 18, we were uh, we were voted number one best drinking water in Kentucky. Yeah, and there wasn't a there wasn't litter or anything. Unlike in LA, it's just all it is is litter for the most part. Again, I work with some of the greatest people in the world, and they make things like that happen. So yeah, it's great. And we have volunteers carrying. You know, my wife she walks and picks up garbage a lot as exercise. So there's uh. The harder, and you know, you asked me earlier, you know, what were some things? Well, the biggest thing I think has been a um, exciting for me was when I saw that the city, the citizens, they got invested in what we were doing. They they finally saw the value in it, and they jumped in with both feet, and it was outstanding. And that made everything flow so much better because things are just going so well now. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Les, thank you. Thank you for your time and for talking with me. Well, you know, I didn't mind that at all. I appreciate it. I don't think I'm that exciting. I really don't. Uh, I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) I I enjoy life. Yeah. And that's the key to it. Absolutely. Amen. And I've got to mention my grandbaby, Parker Reese. If you want to follow my Facebook page, you will see pictures of her come up quite often or videos. We're pretty excited. After raising two boys. I'm now raising a granddaughter, which is totally different. So um, she's at the house the other day, and she's hanging out. And she fell. My wife and I, she's a little girl. She didn't even fall hard. She didn't uncarpet. So we just to her. And uh, my son, Trey, and his wife, Hannah, both said, look, said, y'all going to spoil her. You're going to quit that. I said, look, my house, my rules. And uh, he said, Dad, I died one time, and you told me to walk it off. Yeah, you're a son. She's a granddaughter. Quit it. So grandchildren have a whole other. I watch my parents with their grandchildren, and I think, wait a minute, what's going on right now? <laughs> I told my sons for years. I said that is not the same woman that raised me. I promise, it's not. <laughs> That's the the joys of grandparenting, right? Yes, spoil the grandbabies. Parker Reese has uh, has her poppies. Uh, Ear, eye, or whatever she, whatever she wants, she get. Poppy will make sure she gets. That's awesome. I'm glad she has you and Karen both. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Les. Now I'm I'm tying you down again. When are you coming back to see us? I will. I promise. I want to come. Yeah, uh, I want to come when everything's blooming. Yeah, you need to come see Jill too. Yeah, I know. Because, you know, you and her were friends, and you barely got to talk to her this week. I know. She was a whirling dervish, spitting, she was. spitting around and around. 
come the fall and I'll start watching and let you know when the color is going to be the brightest as the trees are turning color. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love it's that. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I'll be, I'll be in Nashville. It's only a hop, skip and a jump. So I'll probably go to Nashville at some point over the next few months. And you know, you're not far from there. About six hours. But you ever come to LA? Uh, me? I got no business now. I, I'm, a, I'm country mouse. Country mouse can't go visit city mouse. Come see the ocean. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm not big on cities. Traffic gets on my nerves. Road rage. I, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.